Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new podcast in our Green Living series. And let me start by saying that it feels a bit uncomfortable to talk about environmental issues while the news is rightly dominated by the barbaric warfare taking place in Ukraine. And if you can't get these events out of your head, you're not alone. Um, I'm one of them, and I guess all of us listening here uh, are are in 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 our minds. We are we are thinking about Ukraine, and I pay a lot of attention to what's happening in Ukraine in my podcast. Uh, for instance, in the one that I recorded and and published uh, last evening, and also previous ones um, like the one I did with um, Alistair Doyle last Thursday. But we also need hope for a better future. And we need examples of how we can do better because we live in a time where we have the horrible situation that we are dealing with several really risky developments at the same time. These are the compounded risks that many people, including me, have been warning for for a long time. So Apart from this war taking place, there's the pandemic, there's uh, climate change, there is uh, the loss of biodiversity and nature, and there is basically all the 17 goals of the Sustainable Development Goals. All of them are crises that that need attention. And uh, some of these crises develop faster and more explosive, and others are more... Uh, creeping, uh, but are still just as important. And uh, we are in this, po- this podcast focusing on a better and a, and a greener and a more climate-friendly and a more biodiverse world. Uh, and that can't wait either. And I should have added peaceful to that because I believe we need peace as well. So this is the inconvenient truth of living in the Anthropocene. And green cities and green living gives hope in times when we need it. And and we will look today at some inspiring examples. And and we also would love to hear your opinion as well. So with this start that is a bit different than than in the normal podcast uh, before this this horrible war started, um, I would like to focus today on on the positive sides and and focus on, on green living. Uh, and focusing on on green cities and green design. So I would like to start by welcoming our co-host for all the podcasts on green living, uh, Vanessa Champion. Welcome, Vanessa. How are you? And and where shall we start today? (laughs) Uh, Hi, Alex. Hi. Um, uh, Yeah, just to reiterate, actually, as you said about the Ukraine situation, um, it does feel a bit weird talking about um, the green and sort of like green roofs and, and things like that. But you know, nature's a healer. Um, I, you know, I talk about biophilic design, and, and but that's like if we surround ourselves with nature and natural elements, that's such a healing and such a positive and such a peaceful um, space to be. Um, there is a lot of fear and a lot of worry right now, um, and we all need healing along with the planet, actually, and um, and we need some peace and nature. You know, is is a good place to start, and I think you know, if we if we could bring biophilic design into into every city, then I think we um, a lot of mindsets would be would be different. But um, but yeah, how am I, uh, Alex? Thank you. Yes, I'm I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah, I I hope you're okay too. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I suppose, I mean, maybe we could start actually by putting a question to our listeners. Um, you know, those who are listening um, on the app, obviously you can call in um, when we get to the end of the uh of, of, the, of what, we, what, we, what we're waffling on about <laughs> um, but um, also those on the uh, who are going to be listening afterwards please do write comments down and, and stuff because we'd really like to hear you know where, where you live are you seeing any urban farming you know have you got any beehives on the roofs in your offices where you are any green roofs are there any community gardens maybe or have you seen an increase in planting trees I mean, maybe you're growing your own veg. I mean, we, we, we touched on that before, but, you know, on a kind of sootyscape level, I mean, are you seeing anything in like sort of community gardens? I mean, I, we've spoken as well before, and, and a lot of people do know about how green Singapore is, for instance. I mean, I mean, you probably know as well that Singapore is often cited as a great example of how to do a green city. And, and it's true, really. I mean, if you look at what they're doing, they're focusing on what they would just, you know, characteristically, if you want, refer to as systemic efficiency, which kind of in other words is, is like the sort of the joined up approach to include clean electrification smart digital technology energy efficient buildings and also like a kind of infrastructure that has a circular resource economy i mean really i suppose what's what's not to like about that really you know yeah it's it's true yeah there's so much going on in in, in singapore it, and, and singapore has long taken the approach of adopting innovations methodically and and uh, its approach to becoming a net zero city is no different and there there are four projects we 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 could look at to see what they are doing which show an integrated approach uh, can be used to promote greener greater sustainability an, an integrated approach um in, in instead of just you know kind of kind of one-off uh, green things that that look great but you really have to integrate it in, in your policy so every city around the world of course will will have a different journey to net zero but singapore could provide a model for others to follow or at least a model that uh that, that provides a lot of inspiration singapore has taken the approach of of adopting innovations methodologically and and the city authorities they the way they work is they first they conduct uh, pilots and and they do demonstration projects and then they see what works and what doesn't work and then they they scale up and uh, they 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 look at all the technology and the delivery systems and the regulations and the business models and its approach to becoming a net zero carbon city is no different. Uh, the, the Singapore Green Plan 2030 outlines national strategies to become more sustainable with actions taken on the level of buildings and districts forming part of the learning process towards achieving more ambitious sustainability goals. Yeah, well, should we have a look at a couple of them, actually? I know the World Economic Forum highlighted some, um, and one of them is the School of Design and Engineering at the National University of Singapore. So if you're listening to this, it's worth a, again, it's worth a Google. Um, it's aiming to be a net zero campus, which is which is actually would work out as a really interesting case study as well as how you can also retrofit um, energy efficiency into older buildings, as well as how you can create new ones, uh, which aim, aim to hit the, um, the carbon targets. For instance, they've got one that they call the SDE4, which obviously is known outside of its acronym as the School of Design and Engineering Project 4, um, was the first purpose-built net zero building in Singapore. And it was completed um, in three years ago, January 2019. Um, it's also They've also got Building 1 and Building 3, which are really low, low carbon refurbishments of existing buildings. 
Um, so this this one that I was going to talk about this this one that's like number four, if you want, of the school and school of design and engineering. Um, it's, a, it's a zero carbon development. Um, it's, it was in the planning stages, but it's going to provide more than forty five thousand meters square of um, design studios, workshops, office spaces, public spaces, research centres. It's an amazing flagship project, really. Um, it's um, it's going to have a hybrid cooling system, which is going to effectively manage its energy consumption. And um, actually, its entire energy demands are going to be met by this extensive like solar panels on the roof. It's going to have a large overhanging roof as well. So, um, I mean, they've really, really thought about it. Yeah, and this, this uh, by the beginning of this year, this yeah. this SD4 uh, will exceed its its net energy uh, targets. So it it is currently uh, net positive. So it mm-hmm. it it uh, supplies uh, an energy surplus uh, surplus to the campus uh, microgrid, and yeah. which was also the result of the of the concerted efforts by by the school's management and occupants occupants to ensure. Uh, very careful uh, consumption of energy as well. So it's not only about um, uh, creating more energy uh, by solar panels or any other way, but it's also about uh, using less energy. And I think that's a lesson that Western Europe uh, especially has to look at in these days now that our energy supply is under under severe stress uh, due to what's happening in Ukraine. Everybody talks about new sources for energy. And of course, we need those. And 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 of course they should be renewable, uh, but we should also uh, see it. Everything we can do in in using uh, less uh, consumption of energy. And this project uh, has also been instrumental in opening discussions on the future of healthy building design and and sustainability in in Singapore and the tropics, which is of course a special uh, challenge by uh, building in in such a uh, climate. So. Uh, the building also hit the well building standard, uh, which some of you may already know is the standard, uh, the premier standard for for buildings and interior spaces and communities that want to implement features that uh, support and advance human health and wellness. Uh, so it it is, uh, let's say the 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 five star Michelin. Uh, mark uh, that you can get uh, for performance-based certification and often the designs are human-centric and they they integrate all kinds of sustainable building practices yeah it's it's really great Um, as you mentioned this well-building standard it's it's a brilliant thing so again if you're listening to it it's worth having a look at Um, a lot of buildings around the world are are trying to um, uh, sort of reach to it. Um, this one has got gold level certification. And what I really, really, really love about the building is that um, it's got, you know, it's obviously biophilic design in it. Um, one of the main things I love is that it's got access to daylight. Um, and what it's done is it's fragmented the building spaces that allows loads of light, um, loads of light in. And, and every space that's within the building has a large window facade, which means that um, everybody within that building is within seven and a half meters of windows that have so obviously they have access to to natural daylight and also a view to the outside you know outside greenery um it's fantastic which means obviously as well that there's less light you know artificial lights that are needed but the ones that are in there as well have also been selected really carefully to reach um the proper color rendering index values you know so that we have like this low glare 
and low flickering um from a from a biophilic design point of view as well you know from this green living point of view the sort of biophilic design it's um the architecture as well is really good for for our brains and for our mind because it's open and transparent um and this sort of a whole openness allows that those spaces to flow freely through um the the outside of the building Uh, it brings the surrounding landscape close in as well um there's a lot of access to nature um, with the landscaping, loads and loads of greenery. There's water features and there's kind of like this outside inside thing going on. Um, and it, they're all integral elements, uh, you know, to the design of the building. I don't know. Yeah. If, um, yeah. So go on. <laughs> it's a, I'm thinking about how I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here in Ottawa and it's a blue sky and outside there's a fresh layer of snow and I'm sitting close to the window and I actually have to, to to uh, to concentrate on the screen because the light that is coming in is so extremely bright at the moment. This is the best season of of winter here when we already have blue sky and the sun is high up and we still have fresh snow. It's it's actually beautiful. I see we have a question of Joshua. Shall we do questions now or at the end? Maybe we can do it yeah. right now or a comment maybe. So yeah, Joshua, it. please uh, join us and welcome back. By the way. But I don't see, you're still muted, uh, Josh, on the bottom right, you can unmute yourself. And if not, then we we, uh, will just continue. Maybe Josh, I will join later. So, uh, by the way, I I was looking for an example uh, near you. Um, and and uh, there's this uh, showroom of a flooring designer called Milliken, which is which quite close to the Barbican in London. And uh, just just north of it. So let's say if you if you start at St Paul's and you walk north, you pass the Barbican, and 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 then you hit uh, their place. And uh, they were the first in London to get uh, the V2, the version two of the well building standard, uh, and there they have a platinum status. So that's the the upgraded version with uh, even higher standards and. So, so what do they do? It's a good example of uh, of how you get this this standard. So, out of the many many features they have, one is that um, focusing on the mind, they have employee support and and promotion for mental health Ill, uh, issues for all their employees already since since about five or six years now. Um, and then they uh, the the M of movement that they focus on movement, uh, network, and circulation. So they have, for instance, free yoga classes and uh, floor coverings to aid uh, circulation and engagement. The last part is, of course, logical for uh, a factory that uh, focuses on floorings. Um, and then the materials, they are really declared uh, cradle to cradle. So it's it's fully uh, recyclable. It's taken care of in, in their, their design, the way they are used, and then later how they are reused or remade or recycled. Um, so they have a silver certification um, uh, for for flooring, and and uh, they also declare that for the desking. And then on sound, for instance, background noise is is managed with uh, cushion backed carpet, um, and the window units have minimal uh, noise pollution, which is always nice in London. And they have installations for indoor air quality monitors and so on and so on. So this is an example of of all that is possible. It's nice to have an example like that at a very, very high, highest That's standards okay. in, uh, 
in London as well. Um, and yeah, so we, we said we, we'll do, what was it, four examples in Singapore. So would you have another one for us? Yeah, another one is this one in the, it's called the Jurong Lake District. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but that's also under the Singapore Green Plan 2030. Um, it's the, it's the Singapore's second largest business district, um, Jurong Lake. Um, it's been identified as a model for urban sustainability. Um, which what really, what I, again, what I like about this is that it's actually been planned as a car light district, which means obviously not that it's like full of headlights, <laughs> um, but that there's like not many cars um, in that district. And at least 85 percent, they're hoping that at least 85 percent of all the trips are going to be made by foot, bike or public transport. So they're already thinking, let's get rid of the cars. How are we going to do it? So they're putting this infrastructure in with the footpaths and everything like that. And so the and also the district's going to be ready for autonomous and electric vehicles. So it's again, you were looking at sort of bringing technology in alongside the, the green living. But it's all at this sort of early town planning, district planning levels. Um, you know, this isn't about retrofitting. This is about actually planning. So um, another one is this uh, Tenga town. Um, and again, this is obviously biophilic head that I keep wearing. Um, <laughs> they're pro actually promoting living with nature and the plans and their sort of visuals, the visualisation of it is beautiful. Um, it's going to be surrounded by lush landscaping and a forest corridor. Um, it's going to create sort of real this sort of nature centric neighbourhood. Um, very holistic way it's, it's doing that. Um, all, everybody who lives there is going to be connecting with nature um, and obviously enjoying all the benefits that it brings. Obviously, you can imagine there's bird song. There's going to be that fascination with insects. Um, there's going to be the sound of the wind in the trees. There's going to be, obviously, there's a hot place there. There's going to be um, shelter and shade under the trees. Um, I mean, there's, there's so, so many benefits of having biophilic design in a city. Um, but also, you're going to have uh, good modes of transport within and around the town. Um, it's also going to be the first car-free town centre in Singapore um, and also most of the residents are actually going to be living within walking distance of a train station um, I, mean, I don't know how much they're going to charge for the trains we, you spoke about that last time we, um, we chatted Alex about price of you know and, and cost and efficiency of trains um, as long as you know if, if, if everybody reduced that down it would be a lot better it's not like that here in the UK <laughs> oh no <laughs> it costs a fortune to get on the train anywhere um, which puts people off you know you think oh and you have to go you have to drive to a station to get on the train it's mental you know um, they've got rid of a load of our small train stations over here so this is a really good idea and I think we should be incorporating more trains and trams and, and things in in town cities and and, and, and residential areas um, they're also going to, in this Tenga area, they're going to have their homes cooled by centralised cooling systems. Um, more of the, you know, more sort of energy, sorry, these things are sort of more energy efficient than installing individual air conditioning units, you know, on the sort of tops of buildings. And obviously you can imagine that visually it's going to be nicer than, you know, when you go on holiday and you take, try and take pictures of the local places and they've always got that, the air con units on the top and they're always sort of <laughs> dripping down the side of the buildings and it's disgusting <laughs> um, but um, sensors are going to be in each home um, they're going to allow residents to have a breakdown of their energy consumption as well so they'll be able to make informed choices which is what you said earlier Alex about um, you know the people in that you know that that uh, school design in Singapore where they encourage the users to actually use less, en less energy so the same thing with this is that they're going to have because um, they're going to have sensors in the home they're going to make informed choice actually I don't need to turn that up so high um, 
And then because of all this stuff is in, they, they claim um, they're hope well, they're hoping it's going to be sort of have an estimated energy savings of up to 30 percent for for residents, I think. So. Yeah, I, th- I think this this uh, aim for 85 uh, percent uh, doing, let's say, green transport, either by foot or by bike or public uh, public yeah. transport. I think in a city like Utrecht in the Netherlands, uh, that is most likely what we're already at because you, yeah. you just can't get in there with a car anyway. So, so um, it's, it's just completely designed now for cyclists, etc. Um, so I think hardly anybody is, is using their, their car there anymore. And, and yes, what you say on trains in the UK, they were, uh, they were the first to, to actually build, uh, railroad roads, et cetera. But I think they're, to be honest, not saying anything negative about your country, but I think they were also the last to do any, any investment in trains. I think trains in the UK is an absolute nightmare. It is, is so far behind with the rest of Europe, which of course has all to do with Margaret Thatcher's policy of, um, of just, just, uh, cheaply selling all the, all the trains and, and railroads that had been built with with uh, taxpayers' money and then sell them out to the fat cats who just stopped doing any any kind of repairs and only yeah. reaping the profits. And that is uh, a terrible example of, of uh, privatizing uh, public transport. Uh, in, in it's, it's the worst example on how to do it. I'm not completely against that. There are actually a lot of good examples of of uh, uh, having uh, public transport in private hands, but it needs a level of regulation and just just giving it away that is uh, creating the the British oligarchs um, that uh, that has made nobody happy except uh, except for them and, and and all their all their millions and and I I really notice it when I I travel lot and I try to do as much as possible as public transport but if, if you compare public transport in, in European mainland and, and the UK I mean that's wow it's uh, it's it's yeah it's really it's really a challenge sorry to say something negative no, about your country I, I, I just I, gave the Millican example as a positive <laughs> one <laughs> well do you know what I completely agree with you um, I remember when I was younger we had the GLC um, which was a greater London London Council or whatever I think it was called um, but we had a, a chap called Ken Livingston, who everybody now calls Red Ken, and it's all very derogatory and everything. But whatever your politics, irrespective of all of that stuff, um, what he did was really, really good. He um, made our underground um, really cheap. You paid and, and the buses and everything. It was a flat fee. It was dirt cheap. And it meant everybody was on, on the rail. Everybody come off the cars and, and stuff. You know, obviously what's happening now is like the Boris Johnson idea or I, don't know, I can't say that. I mean, whoever it was who brought it in in the first place, but we've got, we have to pay. Now you have to pay to play. You have to pay to go in. And they think by taxing everybody is going to be the way forward. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of poorer people um, are, you know, on the delivery side of things, or logistics or their plumbing or heating or whatever it is, but they still need to travel in. You know, they can't always offset that against the cost of the, the job. So they're not getting the revenue. So actually what they need to do is, hang on, wipe that all away. Let's have proper public transport. Let's make it affordable so people can, and reliable and regular and safe and everything else that, that comes with it. Um, I mean, I know you're going to talk about um, IoT and you know Internet of Things and the technology and how we can use green living. Um, but I think that's also a really good idea because you can work out when the buses are coming and all this kind of stuff. So you can plan your 
your journey and your job as well um, a lot easier. Um, and that means obviously less um, less uh, congestion, which means less pollution, um, all this stuff, you know, for clean cities, clean technology is, is um, it's a no brainer. But yeah, so just just to circle back on what you said there, um, I think the privatisation, I think Margaret Thatcher anyway, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not a big fan. I do get Tourette's when I see her picture on, on, on the screen, um, even though I did. I, I, I think people might know that I'm, I'm an artist and a, and, a, and a photographer. I'm a very much a creative person. My kind of background is in that space. And I did a I actually painted um, a painting, I painted a painting. You would do that, wouldn't you, if you're painting something um, for a a canvas that was trashed on um oh my goodness what was that tv program not the royal family it was the other one oh my goodness i can't remember what it was but they trashed it on telly it was a really it was a really awful telly program um which was the <laughs> but anyway i had to paint this picture of uh, margaret thatcher anyway that's irrelevant but i hated it, it gave me indigestion while i was painting it but she privatized <laughs> the public transport <laughs> um and um and it just it's gone downhill since then really we need to we need to be subsidizing it not not privatizing it totally totally get you with that one yeah so I've, I've well, if, if you want to relive that feeling, I have a few names of other leaders of states in the world to, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, to <laughs> that make you think where you That was the name of the show. It's shameless as a TV show. <laughs> yeah. So uh, staying in Singapore, there's also this one that has um, technology at its center. So they all have a bit of a different approach and, and they have an operating system for the district. So mm-hmm. so the Pungal Digital District, which is in, in the northeast of Singapore, um, and I think it's a part where I've never been. It's quite a long time ago that I was in, in, mm. in Singapore. But this district showcases Singapore's ambition to be a smart nation through the use of, of integrated master planning and technology. And, and part of this effort is what they call the open digital platform. It's a, a smart operating system for the district. So this, this um, ODP, open digital platform, that is capable of pulling together um all kinds of data and over, overlaying data from all kinds of different sources and that enables control systems to to talk to each other through an interoperable uh, platform, which I find both fascinating as well as uh, as a bit Orwellian. Uh, this this plat- platform not only acts as an exchange for the district systems, but it can also uh, simulate different operational scenarios through a, a digital twin. So it, it is expected to, to optimize and reduce energy consumption by 15 to 30% yeah. and also reduce manpower requirements of facilities and, and security management by 50%. And it is this, this 50% reduction of security management that I think is is a bit scary. If you really start to combine all kinds of data, um, that, that is for me not really the feeling of, you know, uh, green and being out in nature, etc. That, you know, if you scratch your head, it's, it's filmed by 10 different cameras and they make an analysis of the way that you scratch your head and then, and then, then take all kinds of conclusions from it. Um, but the other aspects of it in re- reducing energy consumption, etc., by making use of data, that is something that I applaud. So, um, I suppose if we would take lessons from that from our more individual and more liberal culture in, in Western Europe, we will probably try to take some good parts of it 
but um, uh, but not copy it uh, copy it fully. On the other hand, I can imagine that a capital like Beijing is very interested in the part that we are not interested in. So, yeah. so what about you, Ness? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of um, I, I still sort of operate in sort of PR world as well, and then um, we I work with sort of Internet of Things. You know, um, got a company wireless, smart, ubiquitous networks. So sort of Wi-Sun Alliance. It's like it's like Wi-Fi. It's like a communication platform. But this Wi-Sun stuff is is like a mesh technology. So it's seamless. So when you cut a bit off, it always it sort of jumps around, hops around. So it's actually one of the most secure platforms. But um, from that point of view, I, I just like you're saying. I'm. There's two things, isn't there? There's the there's the worry of of um, it, you know t- you know data getting into the wrong hands but also if you can use it for clean technology if you can use it for you know your bins are talking to the you know saying oh i'm full i'm i'm full i'm on the corner of you know 13 and 11 and i and i need to be picked up now whereas you know four streets along which is in a really congested area it's like empty if you can stop the big truck from going all the way down there to pick that one that's empty up but actually direct it to go to the one that's full then that's that's a good idea um, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe we, we could do a podcast another time, maybe on on um, how tech is being used in the in the climate um, battle. But um, yeah, what, what do you? What, what, I mean, you've you just sort of touched on the sort of two aspects, Alex. Yeah, yeah, I, I think tech is 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 fascinating to to use in all these challenges that we are dealing with now. You see wonderful examples in uh, preserving uh, biodiversity, uh, for instance, or uh, in, in uh, you need it for climate as well. I'm always saying that we basically uh, have two kind of challenges. We have the technical challenges and we have the governance challenges, or you might call it the, the political will challenges. And I'm always quite optimistic about what is technically possible. In, in fact, we have all the technology we need to solve climate change with the present techniques and with the present knowledge that is available off the shelf we can solve climate change. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go further in in newer technological developments uh, to do even more and to do better. But we have what we need. But the problem lies with this second requirement, this political will, um, having good leadership. And that is always an issue that I come back on. It is all about governance because worldwide, independent of the way our countries are governed all the way from from let's say iceland to north korea and any system that you have in between we haven't the right system in place to deal with a slowly developing long-term existential threat we can deal with sudden disasters or like now in ukraine you see how countries from all over the world can align in a really short time because a man-made disaster is 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 playing out in 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 real time and you can see how the eu can can suddenly decide to have completely new policies that were unthinkable just a month ago um but climate change is a different kind of threat it's it's like a guerrilla warfare it hits you suddenly in the form of an extreme weather event like like a flooding but uh you don't know when or where it will hit you next. So it's 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 a bit this kind of Che Guevara that suddenly pops up and 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 does something nasty and then and then is then retreating. Um, for us, it is it is difficult as as policymakers to 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 make a policy on that because it's just just the way our politics work and climate change. Um, 
also hits in a different way. So one is this this kind of guerrilla warfare uh, by by sudden extreme events, but the other one is that it's also slowly creeping into our lives. So take sea level rise; um, it it goes so slow that any government can easily kick the can further down the road for the next government to solve. And the sea level rise that we got during the last administration of, what is it, let's say a few millimeters, becomes the new kind of zero measure for the next government. Because when the next government comes into government, they say, okay, the sea level is now this level. And when they leave after four years, it's only a few millimeters higher. And if everybody does that, then it is never a problem. So it's only now that the disasters increase at such an intensity and a severity in the past few years that government really start to give it more attention. And, and, and so does the media. But now we are in such a late stage that uh, we, we are... We are really under, I mean, the house is really on fire. It's not just the kitchen on fire. The whole house is on fire. We should have all our our finances and our technological knowledge and our industrial might and everything we have, we should mobilize to fight climate change because the window is rapidly closing. And what is happening we have this this now barbaric slaughter taking place in Ukraine, which takes all the energy and attention away because this is now the highest priority. But we have more top priorities at the same time. And now we are in an impossible dilemma that could have been avoided if our leaders would just have listened and follow up, followed up to, to what the, the scientists uh, were, were saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it does, it does make you feel where do we go from here, really? Um, and we just wish, you know, we just wish that I think like you, you know, you saying there about um, people have a short term view, don't they? It's well, it's not in my administration. Um, you know, it's, I'll, I'll just do this little bit here because it's not they don't think long term. People have this four four year turnaround, six year turnaround or whatever it is, you know, and they're really they don't think about the next generation. They're not worried. They don't. It doesn't seem to sort of play on their conscience. Uh, why is that? How can we? How can we make that change? How can we make? How can we make the policy decision button pushers <laughs> really feel that they that they need to that um, ethically, morally. Uh, they have to do it. It's not just something that they can, like you say, sweep under the carpet or anything. Um, yeah, I just, I wish, I mean, we, you know, we, we, obviously we're, our podcast is about, you know, cities and, and what can cities do and, and things, you know, and I, I think there are lots of things that cities are doing. And I, I think maybe to kind of talk about the positive again, um, really, I suppose. Um, I mean, I've, I've done a few podcasts myself for the Journal of Biophilic Design, where I've looked at the research side of the benefits of biophilic cities um, with Dr. Joanne Leach uh, from the University of Birmingham. And we've spoken about them before, about, you know, how it brings communities together. It reduces temperature in, in cities. It, obviously, it makes them safer. There's wildlife corridors. It improves biodiversity. There's all these things. And you plant more trees, which is carbon sequestering. So every, all of this. Um, there are just, I mean, I, I kind of, I sometimes feel like, oh gosh, we keep saying this. But, you know, we hope that keep saying it and you get two or three more people listening to it that might have 
you know, have power to make a decision. Um, and also it's, it's, the, it's the civic, the civic right of um, everybody listening here has a civic right to go to whoever it is in charge of them, in charge of their city, in charge of their town to say, we want more trees. We want a, a bifolic town. We want to have um, a greener place. We want to have more cycle routes. We, we want to have, why can't we have urban farming? Why can't we have places where we can all come together and, and grow our own fruit and vegetables? Why does it have to be brought in to the supermarkets? Why do we need a supermarket? Why can't we have more localised, locally produced food? And to bring the community, to bring, and also to, to give, um, you know, have a more of a sustainable economic um, uh, location. Um, you know, I, I think I really is. I mean, I did uh, an, also an interview with an architectural technologist, Robert Bedner, who is implementing green roofs. And I, I know, I know you love uh, green roofs, Alex, don't you? I, I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would love to say a lot about green roofs. I, I see Joshua is is trying again to get in. So let's let's uh, let's first uh, give give that a try. So it went wrong the first time. Joshua, can you unmute yourself? Yeah, uh, it seems like it's working this time, Alex. Thank oh, yeah. you. And I'm sorry that uh, I take up airspace every day, it seems, on your shows, but I don't have a job right now. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we love you. Uh, uh, anyway, I want to kind of, get an international perspective on the Green New Deal, um, because we can't even get Build Back Better done here. We are getting blocked by our own oligarchs um, on that. Um, so in regards to thinking positively, and leading the world in regards to climate change. Um, what is your perspective on the U.S. being able to get that done in the next six years? Um, hopefully the next two years, really, um, if we're leaders. Um, and then the secondarily, fully funding NASA for space exploration as opposed to privatizing it. Um, and looking at that is what the world focuses on since we're really screwing up the colonization of our own planet, making sure that we look 200 years out if we're really going to colonize other planets, um, which is what indigenous cultures do, um, and really get that right. And we're going to have to build in empathy to every system we have, including artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, let's see. Green New Deal um i'm all for it and i think it's a shame that uh that we don't see enough of it happening in the united states because basically the ideal is good that you combine um uh, the uh, let's say the, the the old roosevelt uh new deal um not the old Roosevelt, because then we go too far then we go to 1905 but i mean fdr but i mean the old idea um, of of FDR in uh, when he uh, took over, I think in 1932, of saying uh, by using uh, the finances that you have at the government, by investing that into society, by creating jobs, you uh, you provide work, you provide a better, um, uh, you a more social, more equal society, you. Uh, you invest in in infrastructure or in restoration of lands or in 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 planting forests uh which 
works at uh, which works at the family level, which works at the national level, that you have more means of production, which is ultimately good for the economy and the way to to get out of the the the, the crisis that started in in September twenty nine. Um, combining that with uh, a green policy, where uh, where whether you, whether you like it or not, you need government to you need strong government to get us out of this uh, climate crisis. It was um, too much freedom for uh, for the businesses and the corporations of just making money without having any responsibility for the climate uh, that got us into this horrible situation. So as as Einstein said, and that's the least clever thing that he ever said because everybody else could have said so, unlike his other theories. Uh, but he said, you know, the, the, the people that got you into a trouble are normally not the right people to get you out of the trouble. And, and that is... Um, that is the same with the system that got us into this trouble here. It's not going to be the system that gets us out of this trouble. So a radically different approach um, would work much better. And what you see is that in the European Union, um, it, it has now in the past two years really taken dramatic steps towards uh, all kinds of elements that you would recognize in the Green New Deal. But of course, for Europe, we have a completely dis- different Different way of 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 governance. Um, so we we are we have a much stronger role for the state, and you can see that because it leads to much more livable cities, to more equality, to higher rates of happiness, to better education, to better healthcare. To basically, it's just a much better way of governing your country than than uh, what the US is doing. But mind you, I'm a European speaking here, so. Uh, I, I might have a different opinion, but I've lived on both sides of the Atlantic several times. So I know a little bit what I'm talking about. I've lived in many different countries. Um, on NASA, wow, we were talking about green cities. Um, I hope NASA will build green cities if they, if they are going to build something on the moon or something. But um, I do believe that you need um, huge science programs uh, that are supported by taxpayers' money uh, because it is an enormous um, investment in progress. And the investment that was was made since the late 1950s in NASA, and especially after JFK said that they should have a man on the moon and if no white should be a man, but to have a person on the moon uh, before the end of this decade, and he managed to do so, although he never witnessed uh, the result of his pledge. Um, I do think those kind of steps, uh, you need that, because it's a boost to, to, uh, to, to, to science in many, many ways, often in ways that are, that are unforeseen. I do think where it goes wrong is that if all kinds of other companies um uh private companies that are out there to to make massive promise uh, uh profits for their ceos if they can freely use that knowledge without having to pay back to the community that made that available for them i think then you 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 have a governance problem and you should solve that if if all uh, the knowledge that uh, Steve Jobs co- could could use for free um, is is if if that would would have been 
would have been taxed, would have been paid for it. And that money could have been pumped back into either society or into further research or into education for those people that have no way to 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 get uh, free and, and 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 proper education in the US. So there I would I would uh propose for for another approach but I I do believe that it's good to have something as NASA. I'm not sure if I'm if I believe that we should ever move or live to another planet. I think that it's that is that's crazy because all those planets are horrible. There's only one really beautiful planet is one soft spot that is just you know far enough from the sun but not too far and that has all the conditions and that has the water and that has the beauty and that is our planet um uh, we should take care of this planet so if if we need research in space uh, that makes the conditions on this planet better i'm all for it uh but i don't believe that uh that we should have kind of don't look up kind of approach where uh, where where a, a tiny group of rich and influential people can uh, can sail off to another planet and as you see at the end of the movie they're eaten by some kind of strange dinosaur type anyway <laughs> um, which was the end of Meryl Streep in the movie um, that's any idea from your side yeah. by the way we have only five minutes left because I have oh a lunch goodness. date so uh, oh, yes, you do. Yeah, exactly. too long. yeah just very very quickly actually using NASA and using space I, I yeah I think we could spend it should be spending some money I, I get what you're saying about the you know advancement of technology and advancement of in, you know of, of of learning and things like that i think it's a it, it's good it's, it's 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 a good thing to have but um you said you know if if it can be used for doing research to make our lives better here then that's good that's also justifying it um i worked um i did an interview as well with um a company called skogluft which means forest air swedish company and um they uh they used the um, research that NASA did, um, I think it was in the 50s. It was a long time ago. Um, actually, no, it couldn't have been in the 50s, could it? I don't know when it was. I've, I'm not very good with dates. Ignore me for dates. I'm not, you know, I'm a touchy feely one. <laughs> um, but they, um, they did uh, some uh, a research to find out um, the different air quality um, results of different plants, you know, getting rid of formaldehyde, getting rid of all these the toxins that come out of um, the things that we've got in, in everyday life. Um, but which plants do the best things? So they did that in obviously in a very, very um, controlled environment up there. Um, and also they've also done from an environmental psychology point of view, they've proven, so this is again a, a, a rationale to bring in nature and biophilic design into interiors and, and our built environment because they realised that on the space station, there it's obviously all white. There's nothing there. There's nothing natural. It's all electronics. It's all, um, you know, uh, artificial. So they need patterns of nature. Um, they've proven they need patterns of nature, even if it's textures and, and just sort of, you know, um, creating like a very moving sort of like like uh, filtered light through shadows through through leaves. Um, they need simulations, nature simulations, so they don't go bonkers. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> um, you know, that's, so there is a case study there um, that, you know, that we need, um, we need nature in our lives, um, wherever we are, um, whether that's on this planet or not. Yeah, wonderful. Um, we, we had so much more to talk about today, but we, we lost a bit of time at the beginning. And I, um, as I said, I have to leave in a few minutes. But uh, Green Roofs was one of the things we wanted to talk about. Shall we just move that to next week and just pick yes. it up from there? Yeah, um, and there might be other other events. Uh, I, I realize now how rich uh, this whole 
green living concept is because throughout the week I'm just I always read a lot and I I come across so many issues that oh gosh we should talk about this one too so um, if um, if the listeners enjoy it I can promise you we uh, if and if Ness stays with us that the two of us will will keep on uh, doing this for uh, for quite a while um, and um, and I I love these kind of broadcasts they'll be and people start clapping now which is wonderful so. Um, we'll be back. Uh, I will be back, uh, in, uh, in, with this uh, podcast show on Thursday, the regular time, three o'clock Eastern time together with Alistair Doyle. And we will from now on, uh, stick to the Monday, at uh, this time. So, uh, that is 11 o'clock Eastern time. Um, and do take care that in these two weeks, starting last Sunday, uh, these are those two weeks that there's only a five-hour difference instead of six uh, between um, uh, between New York and uh, and Paris, um, and that means it's a four-hour difference instead of five uh, compared to the to the UK. I think I covered uh, looking at those people listening. I don't know all of you, but I know that some of you are um in cet um so the central european time so that's now only five um uh five hours difference uh hi charlie i see you joining i will write to you later today about something that uh was a bit of a challenge at the beginning of the show and coming back to that thanks so much for all of you for coming back after we crashed the first one after a few minutes um with that uh it's noon here in uh, et it's a beautiful day uh, in the Eastern Zone uh, and here in Ottawa. Um, and I'll be, um, I look forward to uh, see all of you in just a couple of days on uh, on Thursday. Thanks for listening and thanks, Ness. Thank you so much. See you soon. Take care. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.